Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, June 28th, and today Bill Cohan is here to tell us if Wall Street believes a recession is on the horizon and whether investment bankers, our nation's most vulnerable citizens, are about to face layoffs. And later on, Eric Gardner stops by to tell us how the corporate world might be underestimating the legal mayhem that could follow the overturning of Roe versus Wade. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode, Powers That Be. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The ChiliPad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com. Dot M-E slash powers, because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Welcome to the powers that be. I am joined today by Bill Cohan, who's going to tell us whether or not Wall Street believes that we are headed for a recession. What's the takeaway on Wall Street? Peter, well, it's always great to be here. Thank you. Uh, so there's sort of like macro impressions that come out of Wall Street firms, like from their research departments about the probabilities of a recession. And like Goldman, you know, last week just increased the probability of a recession in 2023 to 30% from, you know, 15%. I don't know what that means or how that <laughs> changes anybody's life. But I think on Wall Street, they know that there's a recession not necessarily on Main Street, but they know that they are experiencing something unusual because there's a dramatic slowdown in the volumes of investment banking, uh, business, you name it, whether it's the issuance of high-yield bonds, junk bonds, M&A, advisory assignments, uh, you know, Twitter aside, we're not talking about that, Peter, today, but uh, no Elon Musk. One day soon. <laughs> we can only hope. And corporate 
debt issuance, leverage loans, leverage finance, all of it. Mortgage-backed securities, just volumes are way down. And so, I mean, we're halfway through the year. The chatter has already uh, started on Wall Street uh, about potential layoffs, cuts, reduced bonuses. And, you know, this year being nothing like last year, which was, of course, a bonanza. So if you want to know the Wall Street view, yeah, there's a there's an institutional view that comes out of places like Goldman Sachs and their research departments. And then there's the view from the ground level where people who basically have never been through, many people who've never been through a slowdown in investment banking business, at least not for 13 years since the financial crisis, are now experiencing a real change in outlook. I mean, everybody's negative about what's going on, which actually perversely is quite healthy for financial markets. It just takes a little while to work through. But that's where there's going to be a real change in the sentiment on Wall Street. And people aren't very busy, except for perhaps restructuring people. Bonuses are going to be low and you know, there's a potential for layoffs because that's what Wall Street does. They, you know, bulk up during the gung-ho years. And then, you know, first thing they do when things slow down is they cut people because, of course, the largest single expense on Wall Street is compensation. And there's not a whole lot of creativity when it comes to thinking about how to deal with these situations. So they cut first and think about whether that was the right thing to do later. I was reading a CNBC article earlier about possible layoffs, and I forget who they're interviewing, like some banker, maybe on background. And he referred to something called RIFs or or like RIFs, which is right. Wall Street terminology for reduction in force, which is the, like such a hilarious like Wall Street style euphemism for layoff. It actually comes from the, from the Brits. Oh, does it? Okay. A yes. Reduction in force. Then. Reduction okay. in force, yes. Cheers. Lovely. Yeah, drinks off, yeah. <laughs> All right, right then. Is that what happened too? I mean, just six months ago, things were popping on Wall Street. Like, stocks were high. Did people overhire just six months, a year ago? And now they might have to slice and dice? Sure. I mean, first of all, just I think in terms of announced layoffs, I think JP Morgan Chase, you know, which is our biggest bank, our most profitable bank, Last year made something like forty billion of net income, and Jamie Dimon told me that basically eighty percent of that forty billion is guaranteed every year. So that's thirty-two billion. So I mean, we're talking about a marginal eight billion, and that's enough to get them to cut hundreds of people out of their mortgage-backed security business. They've announced that. I'm sure there'll be a mortgage uh, initiation business for home mortgages. I'm sure there's going to be plenty of that, and it's going to be across the street. You know, it's. It's also an excuse to get rid of the lowest performing people on Wall Street. But yeah, what they do is they bulk up in businesses that are hot, like take the SPAC business, okay? You know, special purpose acquisition company. So that was, a, uh, you know, uh, on a life support business pre-pandemic. Suddenly during the pandemic, SPACs like took off became one of the largest revenue producers on Wall Street. You know, you got underwriting fees, you got M&A fees, you got private capital raising fees. Every time you looked around, you got fees. And so those guys became the, the rock stars on Wall Street for 2020 and part of 2021. And then it just totally evaporated because it was a 
joke of a structure and lots of investors got totally burned while, you know, the underwriters, of course, made off with lots of money and the sponsors of the SPACs theoretically made money. But that time will tell on that, too. So it just became a ridiculous joke, which some of us foresaw right from the get go. But of course, in the meantime, people on Wall Street made a lot of money from that. And now, of course, that business is over or dying or moribund or going to restructuring. And, you know, those originators are going to they better be sucking up to their bosses very quickly to get put in a new part of the business or they're going to lose their jobs. Bill, I want to ask you more about Wall Street and what they maybe want from the federal government uh, when we come back after this break. At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search based on the qualities that are most important to you. Then you can book a free 15-minute consultation call with any therapist you're interested in seeing. So you can get a feel for whether they're the right fit before you commit to a full-length session. Alma also makes it easy for mental health care providers to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of therapists in their directory accept insurance for sessions. So you can find care that's affordable without stressing about the paperwork. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit HelloAlma.com Therapy60 to schedule a free consultation today. That's HelloAlma.com Therapy60. So, Bill, um, Jerome Powell, I mean, the Fed raised interest rates, what, like a couple weeks ago now. That's had time to settle in. What is generally like Wall Street's response to that? So, you know, it represents a major sea change in a policy that existed for 13 years, which was the so-called zero interest rate policy, keeping both short and long-term interest rates at the lowest levels in history. And I think a lot of economists, a lot of people on Wall Street, as much as they enjoyed that uh, and were able to make a ton of money, recognized that it was not sustainable and it was going to result in, you know, all sorts of various asset bubbles that we've seen, which means that we're going to also have to live through the bursting of those bubbles. And that's what's happening now. And so does Wall Street like that? No, Wall Street doesn't like that for the reasons that we were just talking about. The investment banking business is just going to slow down to a trickle. And so that means people are going to get laid off, fired, or their bonuses are going to be vastly reduced. And so there's going to be a lot of cranky people. I mean, people on Wall Street are always cranky. uh, So I guess it doesn't matter. But if you ask them sort of rationally, they would say, look, that was an irrational policy that the Fed hung on to for too long. So to see it, Ending is a good thing, even though there's going to be a lot of pain until investors can get a handle on how long interest rate increases are going to continue for and how high they have to go to deal with inflation. We end up like, you know, Paul Volcker in the late 70s, early 80s, then we've got a long way to go and there's going to be a lot more pain. And this is what the debate is now. Is it somehow not going to be like that? Is it going to, we going to avoid it? Is there going to be a recession? Is there not going to be a recession? But one thing's for sure, the Fed is 
pivoted on interest rates and they're pivoting fast. And, uh, you know, that means people who invested in the bond market when interest rates were lower are getting crucified. And, you know, the stock market at 36,000 is unsustainable. And so there's been a 20% correction, which is healthy, which is good. And everybody's so negative about the stock market and the bond market. So that's good. So eventually, you know, I, I can see when everybody is being so negative, I think at some point soon the bond market will actually be investable. And, you know, there's probably a lot of good opportunity in the stock market if you pick properly. I mean, that doesn't mean go back into things like Bitcoin and this is not investment advice, but there's probably a lot of companies like take Netflix for one. And again, this is not investment advice. Uh, and maybe that should be a, a name of a new podcast. This is not investment advice. <laughs> uh, Netflix has 220 million subscribers, you know, paying like on average $15 a month. I mean, their cash flow, the market cap of the company is something like, you know, 90 billion or something. And there's like 20-ish or 18 billion of EBITDA. I mean, there's a lot of cash flow and, and the market has come down a lot. So Netflix is one. And, and actually it's, come off its lows. So people are sort of getting that. Uh, so in any kind of market correction, like we've been through, and this is like my umpteenth one of these, I mean, the smart thing is to do like Warren Buffett. I mean, he just, you know, invests when everybody else is freaking out. That's, that's the right yeah. thing to do. Does Wall Street sort of, are they like spooked by tech now? Because, it, you know, a lot of the earlier losses in the market, um, even before things started to trend down in a big way for the market as a whole, we're in tech. Are people on the street reevaluating tech or no? Wall Street doesn't get spooked by industries. It's just a question of whether they can make money anymore. The tech industry now is kind of moribund. They can't make money because there's no IPOs. There's no underwriting. There's, you know, very little m and I mean, maybe at some point there might be more as prices get lower. I mean, uh, Wall Street doesn't really have big restructuring business. That's more like boutiques. So the restructuring boutiques are probably getting revved up. Structuring law firms are getting revved up. I mean, I'm sure Goldman Sachs is trying to put together M&A deals, but you know, there are no IPOs. They can't underwrite equity. So that's the way they look at it. They don't say, oh my God, I, we've been burned by the tech sector. So that's it. Never again. I mean, they haven't really been burned. Maybe some of their clients have been burned. Maybe some of their customers have been burned. But Wall Street is very careful not to get burned. They, you know, they get in and get out. They underwrite. And under what that means is they get a fee for raising the capital and that's it. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm thinking too much like an individual investor here, I guess. I'm oh, not. yeah, they've gotten burned. But, you know, Wall Street doesn't care about individual investors, basically. And then you mentioned mortgage-backed securities earlier. I mean, there's obviously like a softening in the housing market from even where it was again. Which is, which is a good thing. Two, three months ago, yeah. What's the what's the perspective on that? I mean, we're, you said you've lived through umpteen slowdowns. This doesn't feel like 2007, 2008 in terms of the housing market. Interesting about this whole slowdown and correction is that basically Wall Street has nothing to do with it. Like, they can't be blamed. This is related to the Fed's policies. This, the Fed is getting blamed for this. So just like in 2008, Wall Street got blamed for everything and needed to be bailed out. Now it's the Fed getting blamed for everything. But you, can't, you don't have to bail out the institution that prints the money. We just have inflation, right? We just have the currency being inflated. So we're all suffering for that. We're all sort of 
bailing out the Fed now. I saw a TikTok, Bill, and uh, the TikToker, whoever this was, <laughs> was like, hey, worried about a recession? Like, here's how long the recovery time has been after previous recessions. And I have no idea whether to trust this TikToker or not. But he did imply that recovery time has become shorter and shorter and shorter over the decades. Is that true? You know, again, it depends who's responsible for the crisis. So like in 2008, with the Wall Street banks being primarily responsible, you know, the Fed could step in and do something about it, i.e. bail them out. Congress could put together TARP and use that money to, quote, bail them out, okay? In 2020, when, you know, it was the pandemic that was responsible, you know, once again, the Fed, which is the lender of last resort, could step in and do something. I mean, it was unimaginable that they could then do what they did. But now, you know, we're coming to the end of a period where we're paying for what the Fed started in 2008 with the zero interest rate policy and the quantitative easing policies. But who's going to bail out the Fed? The way you bail out the Fed is you, you know, raise these interest rates to levels that curtail the inflation that the Fed caused and that some people also blame on Biden's fiscal policies, but I just, I mean, I'm not an economist, so I don't see it that way. I, I think it's mostly the Fed, but, you know, how do you bail out the Fed and how do you bail out the Congress for its fiscal overabundance? You know, we all have to pay the price with higher interest rates and higher prices till inflation gets under control. And that's a lot of pain. Yeah. For everyone. Occupy the Fed doesn't have the same ring as Occupy Wall Street. <laughs> no, not even not even close. Where is the Fed? Who is not the as Fed? exciting. Where yeah, are they? Thank you so much, Bill. My pleasure, Peter. Everyone stick around for a minute. Eric Gardner is going to be here to talk about some possible legal fallout in the corporate world stemming from the Supreme Court's ruling that ended Roe v. Wade. Thanks, Peter. Is it possible that there exists a sector of our society that is underestimating the impact of the Supreme Court's ruling on Friday to reverse Roe v. Wade? I know that sounds almost impossible, and yet I have a nagging suspicion that the corporate sector isn't really prepared for the disruptive mayhem that will be coming from having two Americas, one where abortion is legal and one where it is not. Corporations, where were they these last few years when abortion foes sense victory at the Supreme Court? You hardly heard from them on the topic of abortion, even though corporations haven't been shy about telling the justices what they think about other cultural topics like same-sex marriage and gender identity. This time, Fortune 500 companies have been very silent, and in the wake of the Dobbs decision, many are starting to whisper a stance. They promise to support employees who wish to travel to states where abortion is legal, and some pledge financial reimbursement. But that raises plenty of Important questions. Will companies fight for abortion rights when states like Texas make it illegal to provide any sort of financial support or even crack down on abortion travel? What will companies do if Republicans like Marco Rubio get their way and amend the tax code to eliminate any sort of deductions for corporate expenses related to abortion? How will companies respond when prosecutors in red states start pushing for private data on employees? What happens when corporate executives are threatened with jail time? And so on. And let's be clear about this. 
There will also be blue states that attempt to punish those in red states who interfere with someone's ability to get an abortion. This is war, and no one gets to be Switzerland. Does corporate America understand that? If so, I haven't heard it yet. Whether they like it or don't, this huge ruling impacts them too. It'll impact their operations, their relationships, and their reputation. I'll continue to follow this and keep you apprised of developments on this front. If you want to read more about this topic, I wrote a piece about this, and you can find it at puck.news. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.